Father in heaven, we come before your throne boldly because we come in the name of Jesus. But at the same time, we come with humility because we realize that our knowledge is so limited. We ask for divine wisdom that your word this evening will not return unto you void, but that it will accomplish the mission for which it is sent. We thank you, Father, for the promise of your presence, and we claim that promise in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In the series that I'm presenting here at camp meeting, I'm trying to cover some of the unique and distinctive doctrines of the Adventist church. And perhaps to present some new insights related to these doctrines. On Sabbath morning, we studied the doctrine of the Sabbath. Last evening, we studied the doctrine of the judgment. This evening, we are going to take a look at the sanctuary from the perspective of the book of Revelation. And then, tomorrow evening and Tuesday evening, we will be studying about the coming time of trouble and the second coming of Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. So these are the topics that I'm dealing with because I believe that these are present truth doctrines. This is the truth that the world needs to hear at this particular time in human history. I would also like to mention that the book of Revelation is impossible to understand unless we understand the sanctuary. The reason why the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I say this humbly, is the only church that really understands the book of Revelation is because the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the only church that understands the sanctuary. And so this evening, we're, we're going to take a look at the sanctuary teaching. I don't even like to call it a doctrine, because the sanctuary is the concept that unites all of our doctrines in a system of truth. It is not one doctrine among many. It is the worldview, if you please, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that coordinates all of the doctrines of the church. Now, we're going to study seven steps of Jesus through the sanctuary. And then we are going to take a look at the book of Revelation, and we're going to see that the book of Revelation follows the same seven steps of Jesus through the sanctuary. So I'm going to dedicate just a few minutes as we begin to discuss the seven steps of Jesus through the sanctuary. Now, I must say that there's a lot that we could say. We are going to look tonight at the big picture. We're not going to study individual symbolisms with the furniture and all of these little details. What I want us to see is the big picture, the big view of the sanctuary. And so we're going to follow Jesus in the seven steps of the plan of salvation through the sanctuary. Usually when we study the sanctuary, we begin in the court. I believe that uh, that is not entirely accurate to begin our study with the court at the altar of sacrifice. I believe that we need to begin our study of the sanctuary in the camp because the camp is where the sinners live. And Jesus came to live in our camp before he went to the cross. You see, 
Jesus lived before he died. The law of God requires absolute perfection. The law requires sinless perfection. No one in this world can offer the law sinless perfection. And that's why Jesus came to this world, to our camp, if you please, to live a life without sin, to weave a perfect robe of righteousness for every human being who has ever drawn breath in the history of planet Earth. Jesus came to offer the law the perfection that we cannot offer the law. He came to weave a robe of righteousness by his perfect obedience, and his obedience took place before he went to the cross. You see, his sacrifice at the altar, so to speak, would not have been accepted unless he had previously lived a life of perfection before the law of God. So we begin our study in the camp where Jesus lives his perfect life and offers perfection to the law of God. Then the next step is that we move to the altar of sacrifice. And that is where Jesus bears the penalty for the sins of the world. Sin, every sin that has ever been committed and that will be committed was borne by Jesus on the cross. And he suffered the penalty for sin that we should suffer. In other words, in the camp Jesus lived in our place, at, in the court at the altar of sacrifice, Jesus died in our place. In the camp, he offered perfection to the law. He wove a robe of righteousness at the altar of sacrifice. He bore our penalty for sin. Now, the third step in the ministry of Jesus through the sanctuary is at the laver. The laver was between the altar of sacrifice and the holy place. And I don't have time to get into all of the details. Uh, you know, there are materials at Secrets Unsealed that explain this stage more fully. But the laver is called the laver of regeneration. In other words, the laver represents the resurrection of Christ. You see, after he dies at the altar, he resurrects at the laver. He totally disposes of sin. He washes himself of sin. In other words, uh, sin will have no more dominion over him, and he resurrects. So we have the first three stages in the camp and in the court. He lives his perfect life in the camp. Then he moves to the altar of sacrifice, and he suffers the penalty for sin. And then he moves to the labor, and at the labor, he resurrects from the dead. The fourth step in the sanctuary is his entrance into the holy place of the sanctuary. And in the holy place, what Jesus does is he applies the benefits of his life and death to all of those who repent and confess their sins and have faith in Jesus. You see, just because Jesus wove a robe of righteousness for every person who has ever lived and bore the penalty of sin for every person that has ever lived doesn't mean that everybody is going to be saved. We have to, through repentance and through confession and faith, we have to personally and individually claim what Jesus did by his life and by his death. And so, in the holy place, Jesus intercedes for those who come to God through him. When we confess our sins, he takes our sins and he places them covered with his blood in the sanctuary. 
And some people say, well, that threatens our salvation because if the sins are up there in the sanctuary, you know, that's not like throwing them into the depths of the sea. But let me mention this. If we don't have our sanctuary, our, our sins in the sanctuary through the blood, they're not there, but they're here. So we can be absolutely thankful that our sins go into the sanctuary covered by the blood of Jesus. Because if they're not in there, they are where? They are here. And so the fourth step, since Jesus ascended to heaven to begin his high priestly ministry, Jesus has been receiving clients, so to speak, that by repentance, confession, and faith in Jesus, they can claim the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, and when they do this, the life of Jesus and his death are placed to the sinner's account, and God looks at that person as if he or she had never sinned. That's the intercessory work of Christ. He's our advocate. He's our mediator with the Father according to to scripture. But then we have the fifth step of Jesus in the sanctuary, and that is the entrance into the most holy place. You see, as sins enter the sanctuary, yes, the sinner is forgiven, the sins enter the sanctuary through the blood, but sin defiles. And so as a result of sin entering the sanctuary through the intercession of Jesus, the sins are recorded in the heavenly sanctuary, and therefore sin defiles or contaminates the sanctuary. And therefore, in the most holy place, of course, Jesus continues interceding in the most holy place. After 1844, he continues the function of intercession that he began in the holy place, but he, he takes on an additional function, which is to examine the cases of everyone who has ever placed their sins in the sanctuary. Everybody who has ever claimed the name of Jesus and the purpose is to determine who is a true believer and who is a counterfeit believer. Remember we talked about this yesterday? And that's the judgment, the investigative judgment. The purpose is to sift the wheat and the tares, the wise virgins from the foolish ones, the good fish from the bad fish, those who say Lord, Lord, and those who live Lord, Lord, those who have the appearance of godliness and those who have true godliness those who have truly repented, and those who have had, so to speak, crocodile tears. And so what happens is, as Jesus examines the, the cases of everyone who has ever claimed Jesus, those individuals who truly repented of sin and confessed their sins and trusted in Jesus, and it was revealed in their life, those sins will be taken from the most holy place, and then you have the next stage, the stage number six, and that is, Jesus will take those sins, and he, though, by the way, they were forgiven sins. The scapegoat does not forgive sins. Those sins were forgiven by the blood of the Lord's goat. So that they are forgiven sins that are placed on the head of the scapegoat, who is the originator and instigator and perpetuator of sin, that is on Satan. And then he's sent to the wilderness, to a non-inhabited land, as it says in Leviticus chapter 16, and then he is destroyed with his angels along with all of the wicked. And then you have stage number seven. And stage number seven is that Jesus once again will come to the camp to abide in our camp forever. Now that in a nutshell is a one-hour presentation. 
but we don't have the time. Normally I would do one, this presentation before I do this one, but I know that those who are gathered here, most of you are Adventists, you've heard this before, and so we can just summarize. Now the interesting thing is that the book of Revelation follows this identical order of the steps of Jesus through the sanctuary. That's the reason I say that unless you understand the sanctuary, you will never make any sense out of the book of Revelation. It will be impossible. Because the book of Revelation follows the identical steps of Jesus through the sanctuary. Now let's begin our study in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll read verses 4 through 6. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. We're going to see that Revelation begins in the camp and in the court. It begins with the life of Jesus, with the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The introduction to Revelation begins with these first three stages. And incidentally, let me mention this, the court represents the earth. Because everything Jesus did in the court was done on earth. He came and lived in our camp, that was on earth. He died at the altar, that's on earth. He resurrected at the labor, that's on earth. So in heaven you don't find any court. All you find is the tent of the holy and most holy place. Because the functions of the camp and the court were fulfilled by Jesus on earth. And so we're going to begin with the introduction to Revelation and you're going to see that very briefly Revelation touches upon the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ because that's not the central focus. The central focus of Revelation is what takes place after the ascension of Jesus. Notice Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now in order to, be, in order to resurrect, he would have had to have what? Well, of course, died. In order to die, he would have had to have what? Lived before he died, right? And so it says, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And now notice the tense of the verbs. To him who what? Loved us. This is being written around the year 96 AD. So what's being described here is past. To him who loved us, and what? Washed us. Past tense. Washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to verses 17 and 18, where once again you have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the introduction to the book of Revelation. It says there in Revelation 1:17, John sees Jesus, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and what? Was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So you'll notice that in the introductory chapter to the book of Revelation, you have actually the three first stages of the ministry of Jesus. But that's not the focus of Revelation. The focus of Revelation is what happens in the holy and most holy place. Now, I want you to notice 
that the next section in Revelation, after this introductory uh, presentation, where you have the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, He washed us, and it says He washed us from our sins by His blood, past tense. Now John is going to talk about events that are transpiring in heaven as he writes. And the first section of Revelation begins with Jesus walking among the seven candlesticks. You have the series of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, there are some scholars, even in our midst, that say that Jesus went directly to the most holy place when he ascended to heaven. But the first half of the book of Revelation clearly shows that Jesus did not go into the most holy place. He did not bypass the holy place. If he went from the court to the most holy place, when did he fulfill the function of the holy place? Clearly, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is walking among the candlesticks. Where were the seven candlesticks? The seven candlesticks were in the holy place. And so we find Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 in the holy place. We've already talked about his life, his death, his resurrection. Now in the series of the churches, he is among the seven candlesticks. Now, I want you to notice that Ellen White uses Revelation 2 and 3 to prove that Jesus went to the holy place. She not only says that, uh, that in the series of the churches, Jesus is among the candlesticks which were in the holy place, but she also adds that during the series of the trumpets, Jesus is at the altar of incense, which was also in the holy place. Let me read that statement. It's found in, uh, in many places, but I took it from The Faith I Live By, page 202. This is how it reads. The holy places of the sanctuary in heaven are represented by the two apartments in the sanctuary on earth. As in vision, the Apostle John was granted a view of the temple of God in heaven. He beheld there seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And then she, see, she talks about the candlesticks. And then she continues, He saw an angel having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. That's the altar of incense. And then she says, here the prophet was permitted to behold the first apartment of the sanctuary in heaven. And he saw there the seven lamps of fire and the golden altar represented by the golden candlestick and the altar of incense in the sanctuary on earth. Very clear, isn't it? She's right in harmony with Revelation. Because Revelation says that Jesus is walking among the seven candlesticks. Now the big question is, what do the seven candlesticks represent? Let me just mention that the seven candlesticks in heaven are literal. The heavenly sanctuary is literal. I believe that in heaven there are seven literal candlesticks. And they're burning, they have oil. And they're burning. But the seven candlesticks in heaven that Jesus walks in the midst of symbolize the seven churches. Let's notice Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. In other words, they represent the heavenly candlesticks, the literal candlesticks, represent something on earth symbolically. It says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are what? Are the seven churches. By the way, these seven churches were literal churches in Asia Minor. They were real churches that existed in the days of John. But then we need to take an additional step. And that is that the literal candlesticks in heaven represent seven literal churches on earth, but those seven literal churches symbolize seven periods of church history. In other words, the characteristics of those churches indicate the condition of the church during seven stages of church history. So you have seven literal candlesticks in the heavenly sanctuary, represents the seven literal churches on earth, but those seven literal churches represent seven periods of church history from the days of John till the end of time. Now you'll notice that Jesus is walking among the candlesticks. Notice Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Revelation 1, 12 and 13. Here John states, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. By the way, that is the, the garments of the high priest. If you compare it with the Old Testament description, Jesus is seen as the high priest and he's walking among the seven candlesticks. Now the question is, why would Jesus be walking among the seven candlesticks in the heavenly sanctuary? We have to go back to the Old Testament to understand why. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 is talking about Aaron, the Old Testament high priest, who is actually a type of the, of the priesthood of Christ, of the high priesthood of Christ. And you'll notice why Aaron had to go in the midst of the candlesticks in the Old Testament. It says there in Leviticus 24, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn how? Continually. So what was Aaron supposed to do? He was supposed to make sure that the lamps had what? Oil so that the lamps could give their light. Exactly. And so it says in verse 3, Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it. That is of the candlestick, the seven branch candlestick. From evening until morning before the Lord, continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. What was the purpose of the high priest walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks? It was to make sure that the candlesticks continually had oil and that the light of the candlesticks would never burn out. What does the oil represent? The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And what happens when the church has the Holy Spirit? When the church has the Holy Spirit, it irradiates what? Light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. Now how can he be the light of the world and us also be the light of the world? It's very simple. I like to compare it with the sun and the moon. 
You know, you go outside, you see that beautiful full moon. Some evening you say, wow, how beautiful the moon is. Look at its light. That's a half-truth. Because the moon has no light. So what you need to say is, how beautiful is the sun tonight? <laughs> because the light of the moon is the light of the sun. The sun receives the light and projects it to the earth. Jesus is the original light, and we are supposed to reflect that light to the world when the church has the Holy Spirit. And so the oil represents the Holy Spirit present in the history of the church throughout the course of church history, and the church shedding the light of Jesus because it has the oil throughout the course of church history. Now, folks, there was a period in church history called the Dark Ages, the period of papal dominion, when the light of the church burned dim, but it never went out. Because Jesus was walking, even in that stage of history, Jesus was walking in the midst of the history of the church during that stage and made sure that the light of the church did not go out. God did not leave himself without witness. The Waldenses and the Albigenses and others shed the light, yes, in, in darkness, but the light of the church never went out. Because Jesus was walking in the midst of the history of the church, and even though the light flickered, it never went out. Allow me to read you a beautiful statement from Ellen White that explains this. Acts of the Apostles, page 586. She says, Christ is spoken of as walking in the midst of the candlesticks. Thus is symbolized his relation to the churches. He is in constant communication with his people. He knows their true state. He observes their order, their piety, and their devotion. Although he is high priest and mediator in the sanctuary above, yet he is represented as walking up and down in the midst of his churches on earth with untiring wakefulness, and unremitting vigilance, he watches to see whether the light of any of his sentinels is burning dim or going out. If the candlesticks were left to mere human care, the flickering flame would languish and die. But he is the true watchman in the Lord's house, the true warden of the temple courts. His continued care and sustaining grace are the source of life and light. Isn't that a beautiful explanation of what it means that Jesus walks in the midst of the candlestick? In heaven, he walks in the midst of the little, literal candlesticks. In the history of the seven churches in Asia Minor, he was walking there too. And in the seven stages of church history, Jesus is walking in the midst of the history of the church to make sure that the church always has a measure of oil and is always shedding his light. So in the series of the churches, Jesus is at the candlesticks. The next piece of furniture that we want to take a look at is the table of showbread. Still in the holy place. Now I must mention that neither Ellen White nor Revelation mention the table of the showbread in the holy place. Ellen White does mention it in the holy place, but not in the context of the book of Revelation. So is the table of showbread actually found 
in the book of Revelation? I believe the answer is yes. And I'm going to give you the reasons why. I believe that the table of showbread is represented by what takes place in the introduction to the seals, the seven seals, which is the next series in the book of Revelation. You have the seven churches, then you have the seven seals, and then you have the seven trumpets. You say, why do you believe, Pastor Board, that Jesus, during the period of the seals, is at the table of the showbread? If the table of the showbread is not explicitly mentioned, and Ellen White doesn't connect this with the book of Revelation directly. Well, let's first of all interpret what the bread represents. Bread is unleavened bread, because leaven is a symbol of sin. What does bread represent? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what does the showbread represent, the unleavened showbread? It represents the word of God. Now, what I believe, and I'm going to share the reasons why, is that the table of the showbread in the holy place really is the throne of God in the holy place. You say, Pastor Boy, are you saying that God has a throne in the holy place? Isn't the Ark of the Covenant God's throne? Yes, the Ark of the Covenant is God's throne in the most holy place. But God's throne has wheels. Did you notice from Daniel 7? That God's throne has wheels. God's throne moves. Now you say, Pastor, how do you know that the table of showbread is the throne of God in the holy place? By the way, the introduction to the seals mentions the throne time and again. Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. I'm going to give you the following reasons. Number one, because the throne of God is found, according to Isaiah 14, in the sides of the north. Where was the table of the showbread? The table of showbread was in the north end of the holy place. The candlesticks were in the south end. And the altar of incense was on the western side of the holy place. And so the first inkling that, that the table of showbread is the throne of God is the fact that the table of showbread is in the north and the Bible says that God's throne is in the sides of the north. Secondly, it's interesting to notice what table of the showbread means. Actually, a better translation would be the bread of the presence. In fact, the word panim, which is uh, the, the word for presence, uh, seems to indicate that in the holy place, at the table of showbread, is where God's presence is. Third, the only piece of furniture in the holy place that had two crowns was the table of the showbread. The Ark of the Covenant had one crown above it. The altar of incense had one crown, but the table of showbread had two crowns. What do crowns represent? Who uses crowns? Kings. So somehow, the table of showbread is related to kingship. And there's two crowns on the table of showbread. Not only that, but... The Bible tells us that the table of showbread had two stacks of bread on top of it. It would have been very easy to pile all 12 in one pile. But there were two piles of bread. I believe the reason why is because the Bible tells us that the Father sent the bread to earth. 
Jesus said, my father sends you bread from heaven. And then Jesus says, I am the bread. So the father sends the bread and Jesus is the bread. Both of them are involved in giving bread to God's people. But the greatest reason I believe that the table of showbread represents the throne of God in the holy place is because the Bible tells us repeatedly that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father. You're acquainted with Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where, where Jesus says, To him overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I overcame and sat with my Father on his throne. In Revelation 12, verse 5, after Jesus escapes from the, from the destructive intentions of the dragon, we find that it says she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So how many people are seated on the throne? Two, the father and the son. Now let me read you this passage from Ellen White. Do you remember we read uh, Daniel chapter 7 yesterday? Was there movement in Daniel 7? Did, did the Ancient of Days move and sit down? Yes. Did the Son of Man then come on the clouds and, and go to where the Father had gone, to where the Ancient of Days had gone? Absolutely. Now listen, Ellen White comments on this in the book Early Writings, page 54. I saw a throne. So there's a throne, right? I saw a throne, and on it sat the Father and the Son. So who was sitting on the throne? The Father and the Son. Then she describes Jesus. I gazed on Jesus' countenance and admired his lovely person. The Father's person I could not behold, for a cloud of glorious light covered him. And now notice, she's based on Daniel 7. I saw the Father rise from the throne... And in a flaming chariot, go into the Holy of Holies within the veil and sit down. So where is the Father moving from? From the Holy to the Most Holy. Was there a throne in the Holy Place? Was there a throne, yes or no? Of course. She says, I saw the Father rise from the throne. And he moves into the Most Holy Place. Then she continues saying, and I'm skipping a little, a li a little portion of this statement. Uh, you can read the entire statement. She says, Then a cloudy chariot with wheels like flaming fire, surrounded by angels, came to where Jesus was. He stepped into the chariot and was born to the holiest where the Father sat. Now, what is the only piece of furniture in the holy place that could fit the bill of being the table of showbread? It would have to be the table, it would be this table where there were two stacks of bread, two crowns above it, in the sides of the north. And so the table of showbread, even though it's not mentioned explicitly in Revelation, Ellen White does not mention, ex mention it explicitly in the context of the seven seals, we can reach the conclusion that during the period of the seals, Jesus is at the table of showbread. Now, if you study the seals, you'll discover that under the third seal and the fourth seal, there is a great scarcity of bread. You know, the two grains that were used to make bread in biblical times were barley and wheat. And under the third seal, 
we find that there was tremendous scarcity of barley and wheat. It was excessively expensive. Let me ask you, when does a product become expensive? When it is scarce. When there's little of it. Let me ask you, what happened during the period of the third and fourth seal? The third seal is the period when Constantine introduced apostasy into the church. The fourth seal represents the period of papal dominion. What happened with Scripture, with the Word of God during that period? It was forbidden. It was kept in a language that the people could not understand. And therefore, people were in ignorance. So it's interesting that in the context of the seals, you have a scarcity of bread. That would seem to indicate also that the table of the showbread is implicitly found in the series of the seals. Are you with me? Now we need to go to the next series, the introduction to the next series, the trumpets. Where is Jesus during the period of the trumpets? Well, we're going to notice that Jesus, during the period of the trumpets, which, by the way, I believe the churches describe all of church history. I believe the seals describe all of church history. And I believe that the trumpets also describe all of church history. That's historicism. I'm very traditional when it comes to that. I don't believe that the trumpets are future. I believe the trumpets have been fulfilled step by step, just like the churches were fulfilled step by step, and the seals were fulfilled step by step. So in the period of the trumpets, Jesus is walking, so to speak, in the midst of the history of the church. He's at the altar of incense. In a moment, I'm going to read you a text that makes that very, very clear. Now, what does the incense represent that is presented there on the altar of incense? Go with me to Luke chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. Luke chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. This is an interesting passage because uh, you have in this passage both the symbol and what the symbol represents. So you have the symbol and the meaning of the symbol. Luke chapter 1 and beginning with verse 8. So it was that while he, that is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So here's Zechariah. He's going to burn incense at the altar of incense. What were the people doing outside? It says, And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So somehow incense is related to what? Is related to prayer. That's right. Incense is not prayer. Incense is related to prayer. Notice Psalm 141 and verse 2. Psalm 141 and verse 2. Once again, prayer is related to incense, but there's something deeper that we're going to notice in a few moments. It says there in Psalm 141 verse 2, Let my prayer be set before you as what? As incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So once again, incense and prayer are linked together. But Incense does not represent prayer. It represents something that is added to the prayers. Notice the introductory verses to the trumpets. Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. This is why I say that Jesus is at the altar of uh, incense during the period of the trumpets. You see, during the period of, of the churches, he's among the candlesticks. During the period of the seals, he's at the table of showbread. During the period of the trumpets, he's at the altar of incense. Which apartment is he in? 
in the holy place. All three pieces of furniture are in the holy place. So notice Revelation 8, 3 and 4. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. This is the altar of incense. He was given, now listen carefully, he was given much incense that he should offer it. What's the next word? With the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So does the incense represent prayer? No, the incense is added to the prayers. And then verse 4 says, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now what is it that is mingled with the prayers of God's people? Once again, Ellen White, who helps us so much in amplifying and clarifying what we find in Scripture, in the book In Heavenly Places, page 69, makes this beautiful statement about what the incense represents. Christ has pledged himself to be our substitute and surety, and he neglects no one. There is an inexhaustible fund of perfect obedience accruing from his obedience. See, by his obedience, he has what? By his obedience, we have an inexhaustible fund of obedience, is what she's saying. She continues writing, In heaven, his merits, his self-denial, and self-sacrifice are treasured up as incense to be offered up with the prayers of his people. See, it's not enough for us to pray. Our prayers must be mingled with the merits of Christ, the merits of his perfect obedience. And then she writes, as the sinner's sincere, humble prayers ascend to the throne of God, Christ mingles with them the merits of his life of perfect obedience. Our prayers are made fragrant by this incense. Are you understanding a little bit better what Jesus does at the altar of incense during the period of the trumpets? By the way, what happened during the period of papal dominion? To whom did people pray? Where did people seek forgiveness? They prayed to Mary. They prayed to the saints. Where did they go for forgiveness, for absolution of their sins? To the priest in the confessional. So you see, in all three of these series, during the dark ages, the light of the church is dim. It doesn't go out, but it's dim because the papacy has hidden the light. During the period of the seals, there's a scarcity of sanctuary bread of the Word of God because the papacy forbade the Word of God and kept it in a language that people could not understand. And during the period of the trumpets, the intercessory work of Christ is hidden because people think that they have to pray, or pray to the saints and they have to seek absolution from sin from an earthly priest. So you find the work of the papacy being revealed in the period of the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. So, we follow Jesus from the court. He lived, died, he resurrected. He's among the candlesticks. He's at the table of showbread. He's at the altar of incense. Where would you expect him to go next? 
How about the most holy place? Let's notice the next sanctuary vision. Revelation eleven nineteen. And we're looking at the big picture. We could discuss all kinds of details in between. But I want you to see the big picture. Revelation 11, verse 19. This is the verse that comes immediately after the conclusion of the trumpets. So it's the next step after the trumpets. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. So if the temple of God was opened in heaven before it must have been that was weak. If it's open before it must have been what? Closed. There, that's much better. So the temple of God was open in heaven. Now let me mention this. The word temple, naos in Greek, is used 16 times in Revelation. And I believe every single reference refers to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. All 16. And we know this for a fact, because notice how this verse continues reading. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and what is seen in the temple, in the naos? And the ark of his covenant was seen in his naos, was seen in his temple, that is in the most holy place. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So what is the next stage? What is opened after the churches, the seals, and the trumpets? The most holy place is opened. That's the next stage. And what is seen? The Ark of His Covenant. Let me ask you, what was the only day in the Hebrew year when the most holy place was opened? On the Day of Atonement, when the judgment of Israel took place. So this must be referring to the beginning of what? The beginning of the heavenly judgment. That's the next stage. Jesus is now moving where? He's moving into the most holy place. And by the way, just as a sidelight, you know, when our pioneers, after the great disappointment, entered the most holy place, suddenly they discovered all of the distinctive doctrines of the Adventist church. The reason why the Christian world does not accept the, accept the distinctive doctrines of the church is because they're in the wrong apartment. Let me ask you, what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law. What does the Christian world say about the law? It was nailed to the cross. What do you find in the center of the law? The Sabbath. What does the Christian world say about the Sabbath? It was for the Jews. You have a pot of manna, which not only presents the Sabbath as a test, but the manna also rep represents healthy living in Numbers 11. Health reform. What does the Christian world say about eating certain things that the Bible forbids? They say, well, the prayer sanctifies the pork. When you enter the most holy place, you immediately know that the judgment is beginning. But the Christian world says, you're judged when you die. Are you following me? The Christian world cannot accept the distinctive doctrines of the Adventist church until the Christian world enters the most holy place. Then they'll see that the law is binding, that the Sabbath is binding, that we're to live a healthy life, that, that the hour of God's judgment is now. And our pioneers shortly after in 1844 began discovering each and every one of these doctrines. Amazing. Now we have to synthesize. What would the next stage be? The next stage, folks, 
is the moment when the heavenly ministration comes to an end. There's no more intercessor because the sins now are going to be placed upon the scapegoat. Go with me to Revelation chapter 15. This is the closing of the most holy place ministry. I wish I had time to go into Revelation 12, 13, and 14. The central thought is the judgment in those chapters. In other words, Revelation 11, 19 is the introductory verse. But the center of all of those chapters, it deals with some historical events, but the idea is eventually to lead you to the judgment, to explain the beginning of the judgment. Revelation 15, 5 through 8 describes the closing of the heavenly ministration. It says, After these things I looked and behold, the temple, same word now, most holy place, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. What is the tabernacle of the testimony? It's the entire tent. The tabernacle is the entire tent. But that temple, that tabernacle has a temple. What is the temple of the tabernacle? It's the most holy place that we just noticed in Revelation 11 verse 19. So it says, Behold, the temple of the tabernacle of, heaven, uh, of the testimony in heaven was open. So you say, well, it was open in 1119. Yes, it was open in 1119 so that people could go in. But the purpose here for the opening of the temple is so that the plague angels can come out. Why are they going to come out? Because probation has what? Closed. Continue saying in verse 6, And out of the temple... This is the reason why it's open. Not so that people can go in by faith and, and you know, claim Jesus as the advocate and the mediator. No, the Revelation 11, 19 tells us that that's why the most holy place was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple, that's still the most holy place. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And now notice this. And no one was able to what? To enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Have you ever read in the spirit of prophecy that during the time of trouble after the close of probation, God's people will have to live without a mediator? This is the biblical basis. No one is able to enter the temple. By the way, we don't enter physically. How do we enter? We enter there by faith. Through our mind, we enter the heavenly sanctuary. But the time is coming when no one will be able to enter the temple because intercession has come to an end. Of course, the best illustration of this is found in the story of the flood. And I'll go through this quickly. Noah preached for 120 years. Was the door of probation open during that period? Yes, it was very much open during that period. Was the spirit contending with humans uh, along with the message of Noah? Yeah, my spirit shall not contend always with man. Let me ask you, did the message of Noah divide humanity into two groups? Was it a message of judgment? Yes, when he finished preaching, there were two groups. And then after he finished preaching... He and his family go into the ark, and what happens? The door closes. And the moment the door closes, it started to rain. No. Did Noah and his family go through a time when their faith was tested? Yeah. I imagine each day going by. What happened with the, with the people outside for each day that passed? Ellen White says that they became more and more violent and more daring. 
That's an illustration of the time of trouble after the door closes. There's a period where God's people's faith will be tested. The wicked will become more and more violent towards God's people. But then destruction came upon the wicked. And by the way, Satan was bound to this earth that returned to the condition it was in before creation. Weak! And he was forced to stay here like during the millennium. And Ellen White says that he feared for his very existence in Patriarchs and Prophets. Now where do the plagues come from? The plagues come from the ark. Because the wicked have trampled upon God's holy law. You say, now where do you get that idea from? Can you think of a story in the Bible where the plague poured out plagues? Yes, when it fell into the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines. Remember they took the ark to one city and poured out plagues because they, were, they, they trampled on God's law? So this city said, <laughs> your turn. They said to the next city, they'll take it to the next city. And it also poured out plagues. So we would assume that in the Revelation, because this is the Ark of the Covenant is, is seen in the most holy place, when the angels are about to come out with the plagues, it's because human beings have trampled upon God's holy law. Are you following the sequence? Jesus lives, he dies, he resurrects, then he goes to the candlesticks, table of showbread, altar of incense, the most holy place is open for the judgment, and then after the judgment, probation closes, the door closes, and now the angels are going to come out with the seven last plagues. What would be the next step? Well, it would be the scapegoat ceremony, wouldn't it? Is there a scapegoat ceremony in the book of Revelation after the closing of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary? Of course there is. Where is it found? In Revelation chapter 20. Who is the scapegoat? Satan. It says a mighty angel comes from heaven. What does he do? He binds Satan. And he binds him in a world that is a desolate wilderness where there are no inhabitants because all of his followers have died. Are those the two characteristics of the scapegoat ceremony in Leviticus 16? Does it say that the scapegoat is sent to the wilderness? Yes. To a non-inhabited land? Absolutely. And so the next step in Revelation chapter, chapter 20 is the scapegoat ceremony where the scapegoat is exiled to planet earth and where he is bound here for a thousand years having received all of the sins that were placed in the sanctuary. Let me ask you, what would be the next stage? It must be the return to the camp. You think? Revelation chapter 21 verses 2 through 4. By the way, do you know what uh, where God's people lives is called? It's called the camp of the saints. In Revelation 20 verse 9. The wicked surround the camp of the saints. And this is how Revelation chapter 21 verses 2 through 4 reads. Then I, John, saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven of God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is what? With men, and he will what? Dwell. Do you know that's the same word that is used in John 1.14? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. See, when he came to live his life, he dwelt among us. But after Satan and the wicked are destroyed, then he will once again come to dwell with us. And so it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will come to our camp, and he will live in our midst forever and ever. And the plan of salvation will be finished. Do you see the sanctuary sequence in the book of Revelation? Is it possible to understand the book of Revelation without the sanctuary? No. Now, Christians can understand bits and pieces. You know, like the lamb who was slain. You know, they can understand individual symbols, etc. But not the sequence of events that Jesus follows as he moves to the sanctuary and how the sin problem involves many steps that Jesus needs to take to resolve once and for all, fully and completely, the problem of sin. Now I'd like to end this evening by referring to our scripture reading. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there will be many mansions. Thank you very much. Because many people say Jesus went to heaven to build mansions. He's doing heavenly contracting. That's not what the text says. The text says, in my Father's house are many mansions. They were there when Jesus spoke. So if you're expecting a mansion, don't worry, it's already there. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And you know, what we usually think, and by the way, I believe Jesus went to heaven to prepare a nice, beautiful place for us. But that's not the main emphasis of these verses. Jesus does not need 2,000 years to prepare a place for us when he created the world in six days. Jesus goes to heaven to prepare a place for us by the work that he performs in the sanctuary. What we've talked about tonight. You see, Hebrews and Revelation speaks about the work that Jesus does in heaven to prepare the place up there for us. Whereas John 14 through 17 speaks about the Holy Spirit preparing us to go to the place. Amen. So Jesus in heaven prepares the place and the Holy Spirit on earth prepares us to live in the place. Amen. And so we have to study both. We have to study Hebrews and Revelation which is what Jesus does in heaven and we need to study also John 14 through 17, what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in preparing the church so that we can live in that place. Amen. And so I challenge all of us to study Hebrews, Revelation. Study John 14 through 17. Those are critically important verses on how we must prepare to live with the Holy God 
throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. I challenge us to get back to Scripture. Cast aside the television, except for 3ABN. <laughs> but all those things that distract us, all those worldly things that strengthen us in worldly things, rather than strengthening our mind for spiritual things. How about it? Is that a decision you want to make? You want to raise your hand if that's your decision and the desire of your heart? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Don't miss tomorrow. We'll talk about the time of trouble. Don't worry, you're not going to be scared. Some people say, I hope the Lord lays me to rest before that time. Oh, you're going to have such, such enthusiasm and such hope and such strength as we study this subject tomorrow. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before your awesome throne. Thank you for giving us this magnificent book of Revelation. Thank you for giving us Jesus, who takes all of these steps to save us. Thank you because he lived the perfect life that we are required to live. Thank you because Jesus went to the cross and bore the penalty for our sins. Thank you that he resurrected from the dead so that he could begin his intercessory ministry and actually give us forgiveness of sins as we claim his righteousness. Thank you because our sins are introduced into the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus and they will eventually be eradicated from the sanctuary. Thank you, Father, because ultimately sin and Satan and his angels and the wicked will be destroyed and will live in a perfect world where there will no be, not be sin ever again. Oh, we look forward to that day. Help us, Lord, to be ready. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com. Dot org.